0: SECTION ONE OF THE ROVER VOLUME ONE NUMBER TWO This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aidan Fitzgerald THE ROVER VOLUME ONE NUMBER TWO Edited by SEBA Smith and Lawrence Labrie SECTION ONE CLAUDE Gu by Victor Hugo Seven or eight years ago, a man by the name of Claude Gueux, a poor artisan, was living in Paris. He had with him a girl who was his mistress and a child by this girl. I tell things as they were, leaving the reader to gather the moral for himself, as the facts of my story bring it before him. The artisan was skillful, quick, intelligent, very ill-treated by education, very well-treated by nature, able to think but not to read. One winter his work failed him. There was neither fire nor food in his garret. The man, the girl, and the child were cold and hungry. He committed a theft. I know not what he stole, or whence he stole it. I only know that the consequences of this theft were three days' food and fire to the girl and the child and five years' imprisonment to the man. He was sent to undergo his sentence at the House of Correction at Clairvaux an abbey changed into a jail, a cell changed into a prison cage, an altar changed into a pillory. When we speak of change, it is thus that certain persons understand and execute it. Such a meaning do they give to the word. To proceed, when arrived there, he was placed in a dungeon at night and in a workshop by day. I have no quarrel with the workshop. Claude Gu, lately an honest man, now and henceforth a thief, was dignified and grave in appearance. His high forehead was already wrinkled. Though he was still young, some grey lines lurked among the black and bushy tufts of his hair. His eye was soft and buried deep beneath his lofty and well-turned eyebrows. His nostrils were open, his chin advancing, his lip scornful. It was a fine head. We shall see what society made of it. He was a man of few words, more frequent gestures, somewhat imperious in his whole manner, and one to make himself obeyed, of a melancholy air rather serious than suffering. For all that, he had suffered enough. In the place where he was confined, there was a director of the workrooms, a kind of functionary peculiar to prisons, who combined in himself the offices of turnkey and tradesman. Who would at the same time ensue an order to the workmen and threaten the prisoner, put tools in his hands and irons on his feet? This man was a variety of his own species a man peremptory, tyrannical, governed by his fancies, holding tight the reins of his authority, and yet on occasion a boon companion, jovial, and condescending to a joke, rather hard than firm reasoning with no one, not even himself, a good father, and doubtless a good husband. A duty, by the way, and not a virtue. In short, evil, but not bad. The principle, the diagonal line of this man's character, was obstinacy. He was proud of it, and therein compared himself to Napoleon. When he had once fixed what he called his will upon an absurdity, He went to its furthest length, holding his head high, and despising all obstacles. Such violence of purpose without reason is only folly tied to the tail of brute force and serving to lengthen it. For the most part, whenever a catastrophe, whether public or private, happens among men, if we look beneath the rubbish with which it strews the earth, to find in what manner the fallen fabric had been propped, We shall, with rare exceptions, discover it to have been blindly put together by a weak and obstinate man, trusting and admiring himself implicitly. Many of the smaller of these fatalities pass in the world for providences. Such was he who was the director of the workrooms in the central prison of Clairvaux. Such was the stone with which society daily struck its prisoners to draw sparks from them the sparks which such stones draw from such flints often kindle conflagrations. We have said that once having arrived at Clairvaux, Claude Gueux was classed in a workroom and kept to hard labour. The director became acquainted with him, perceived that he worked well, and treated him accordingly. It even appeared that one day, being in a good humour, and seeing Claude very sad, for he was always thinking upon her whom he called his wife. He told him, by way of amusing, as well as consoling him, that the unfortunate creature had become a woman of the town. Claude asked coldly what had become of the child. He did not know. In a short time, Claude found the prison air natural to him, and appeared to have forgotten everything. A certain severe serenity, which belonged to his character, resumed its mastery. In the same time, he had acquired a singular ascendancy over all of his companions, as if by a sort of silent agreement, and without any one knowing wherefore, not even himself. All these men consulted him, listened to him, admired and imitated him, the last point to which admiration can mount. It was no slight glory to be obeyed by all, these lawless natures, the empire, had come to him without his seeking it was the consequence of the respect with which they beheld him the eye of a man is a window through which may be seen the thoughts which enter into and issue from his heart place an individual who possesses ideas among those who do not at the end of a given time and by law of irresistible attraction all their misty minds shall draw together with humility and reverence round his illuminated one. There are men who are iron, and there are men who are lodestone. Claude was leadstone. In less than three months he had become the soul, the law, the order of the workroom. He was the dial, concentrating all rays. He must even himself have sometimes doubted whether he were king or prisoner. It was the captivity of a pope among his cardinals. By his natural reaction accomplished step by step as he was loved by the prisoners so is he detested by the jailers it is always thus popularity cannot exist without this favor the love of the slaves is always exceeded one degree by the hate of the masters claude was by his particular organization a great eater his stomach was so formed that food enough for two common men but hardly has sufficed for his nourishment. Monsieur Ducatadilla had one of these large appetites, and laughed at it, but that was which is a cause of gaiety for a Spanish gondi, with his five hundred thousand sheep, is a heavy charge to an artisan, and a misfortune to a prisoner. Claude Gueux, free in his own loft, worked all day, earned his four pounds of bread, and ate it. In his prison, he worked all day, and for his pains received one pound and a half of bread, and four ounces of meat. The ration admits of no change. Claude was therefore constantly hungry while in the prison of Clairvaux. He was hungry and no more. He did not speak of it, because it was not his nature so to do. One day, Claude, after devouring his scanty pittance, had returned to his work, thinking to cheat his hunger by it. The rest of the prisoners were eating cheerily. A young man, pale, fair, and feeble-looking, came and placed himself near him. He held in his hand his ration as yet untouched, and a knife. He remained in that situation, with the air of one who would speak and dares not. The sight of the man and his bread and meat annoyed Claude. "'What do you want?' said he rudely. That you would do me a service, said the young man timidly. What? replied Claude. That you would help me eat this. It is too much for me. A tear stood in the proud eye of Claude. He took the knife, divided the young man's ration into two equal parts, took one of them, and began eating. Thank you, said the young man. If you like, we shall share together every day. What is your name? said Claude. "Albon." "'Wherefore are you here?' "'I have committed a theft.' "'And I, too,' said Claude. "'Henceforth, they did thus share together every day. Claude Gueux was a little more than thirty years old, but at times he appeared fifty. So stern were his thoughts, usually. Albon was twenty. He might have been taken for seventeen. So much innocence was there in his appearance of this thief.' A strict friendship was knit up between the two, rather of father to son than brother to brother, Alban being still almost a child, Claude, already nearly an old man. They wrought in the same workroom, they slept under the same vault, they walked in the same airing ground, they ate of the same bread. Each of these two friends was the universe to each other. It would seem that they were happy. We have already spoken of the director of the workrooms. This man, who was abhorred by the prisoners, was often obligated, in order to enforce obedience to have recourse to Claude Gu, who was beloved by them. On more than one occasion, when the question was, how to put down a rebellion or tumult, the authority without title of Claude Gu had given a powerful aid to the official authority of the director in short to restrain the prisoners ten words from him were as good as ten gendarmes claude had many times rendered this service to the director wherefore the latter detested him cordially he was jealous of this thief there was at the bottom of his heart a secret envious implacable hatred against claude the hate of a titular for a real sovereign of a temporal against a spiritual power, these are the worst of all hatreds. Claude loved Albon greatly, and did not trouble himself about the directors. One morning, when the turnkeys were leading their prisoners two by two from their dormitory to the workroom, one of them called Albon, who was by the side of Claude, and informed him that the director asked for him. What does he want with you? said Claude. I do not know, replied the other, the turnkey took Alban away. The morning passed, Alban did not return to the workroom. When the dinner hour arrived, Claude expected that he should rejoin Albon in the airing ground, but no Alban was there. He returned into the workroom, still Alban did not make his appearance, so passed the day. At night, when the prisoners were removed to their dormitory, Claude looked about for Albon, but could not see him. It would seem that he must have suffered much at that moment, for he addressed the turnkey, a thing which he had never done before. "'Is Albon sick?' was his question. "'No,' replied the turnkey. "'Why is it, then, that he has not made his appearance today?' "Ah," replied the turnkey carelessly. "'They have put him in another ward.' The witnesses who disposed to these facts at a later period remarked that at this answer Claude's hand, in which was a lighted candle, trembled a little. He asked again calmly, Whose order was this? The turnkey said, Monsieur Des. The name of the director of the workrooms was Des. The next day went by like the last, but no Albon. That evening, when the day's work was ended, The director, Monsieur Des, came to make his usual round of inspection. As soon as Claude saw him, he took off his cap of coarse wool, buttoned his gray vest, sad livery of Clairvaux. It is a principle in prisons that a vest, respectfully buttoned, bespeaks the favor of the superior officers, and placed himself at the end of his bench, waiting till the director came by. He passed. Sir, said Claude. The director stopped and turned halfway round. Sir, said Claude, is it true that Albon's ward has been changed? Yes, returned the director. Sir, continued Claude, I cannot live without Albon. You know that with the ration of the house, I have not enough to eat, and that Albon shared his bread with me. That was his business, replied the director. Sir, our... Are there no means of getting Alban replaced in the same ward as myself? Impossible. It is so decided. By whom? By myself. Monsieur D. The question is my life and death. It depends upon you. I never revoke my decisions. Sir, is it because I have given you any offence? None. In that case, said Claude, Why do you separate me from Albon? It is my will," said the director. With this explanation he went away. Claude stooped his head and made no answer. Poor caged lion from whom they had taken his dog. We are obligated to confess that the grief of this separation in no way changed the prisoner's almost disease of veracity. Nor was he in other respects obviously altered. He did not speak of Alban to any of his comrades. He walked alone in the airing ground, in the hours of recreation, and suffered hunger. Nothing more. Nevertheless, those who knew him well remarked something of a sinister and somber expression, which daily overspread his countenance more and more. In other respects, he was gentler than ever many wished to share their ration with him he refused with a smile every evening after the explanation which the director had given him he committed a sort of folly which in so grave a man was astonishing at the moment when the director and the progress of his habitual duty passed by claude's working frame he would raise his eyes gaze steadily upon him and then address to him in a tone full of distress and anger combining at once menace and supplication, these two words only. And Albon. The director would either appear not to hear or pass on, shrugging his shoulders. He was wrong. It became evident to all the lookers-on of these strange scenes that Claude was inwardly determined on some step. All the prison awaited with anxiety the result of this strife between obstinacy and resolution. It has been proved that once Claude said to the director, "'Listen, sir, give me back my comrade. You will do well to do it, I assure you. Take notice that I tell you.'" Another time one Sunday, when he had remained in the airing ground for many hours, in the same attitude, seated on a stone, his elbows on his knees, and his forehead buried in his hands. The convict, Fouillette, approached him, and cried out laughing, What the devil art thou about there, Claude? Claude raised his head slowly, and said, I am sitting in judgment. At last, on the evening of the 25th of October, 1831, at the moment when the director was making his round, Claude, crushed under his foot a watch-glass, which he had that morning found in the corridor. The director inquired whence that noise proceeded. It is nothing, said Claude. It is I, monsieur le directeur. Give me back my comrade. Impossible, said his master. It must be done, though, said Claude, in a low and steady voice. And looking the director full in the face added, Reflect. This is the 25th of October. I give you till the 4th of November. A turnkey made the remark to Monsieur De that Claude threatened him and that it was case for solitary confinement. No, nothing of the kind, said the director, with a disdainful smile. We must be gentle with these sort of people. On the morrow, the convict, Pernod, approached Claude who walked by himself melancholy leaving the other prisoners to bask in a patch of sunshine at the further corner of the court what now claude what are thinking of thou seemst sad i am afraid said claude that some misfortune will happen soon to this gentle monsieur de there are nine full days from the twenty-fifth of october to the fourth of november Claude did not let one pass without gravely warning the director of the state, more and more miserable, in which the disappearance of Alban placed him. The director, worn out, sends him to four and twenty hours solitary confinement, because his prayer was too like a damned. This was all Claude obtained. The fourth of November arrived on this day claude arose with such a serene countenance as he had not worn since the day when the decision of monsieur de had separated him from his friend when risen he searched in a white wooden box which stood at the foot of his bed and contained his few possessions and drew from thence a pair of seamstress scissors these with an odd volume of emile were all that remained, to him, of the woman he had loved, of the mother of his child, of his happy home of other days. Two articles totally useless to Claude. The scissors could only be of service to a woman, the book to a lettered person. Claude could neither sew nor read. At the time when he was traversing the old cloister, desecrated and blanched, which serves as the winter walk for the prisoners, he approached the convict Ferreri, who was looking with attention at the enormous bars of a window. Claude was holding the little pair of scissors in his hand. He showed them to Ferreri, saying, "'Tonight I will divide those bars with these scissors.' Ferreri laughed incredulously. Claude joined him. That morning he worked with more zeal than usual, faster and better than before, he appeared to attach a certain importance to completing, that morning, a straw hat, for which Monsieur Bressier, an honest bourgeoise of Troyes, had paid him beforehand. A little past noon, he went down on some pretext or other to the joiner's workshop on the ground floor, under the story in which was his own. Claude was beloved there, as everywhere else, but he entered it seldom. Thus it was, Stop! Here's Claude! They got round him. It was a perfect holiday. He cast a quick glance round the room. Not one of the overlookers was there. "'Who has a hatchet to lend me?' said he. "'What to do?' was the inquiry. "'Kill the director of the workrooms.' They offered him many to choose from. He took the smallest of those which were very sharp, hid it in his trousers, and went out. There were twenty-seven prisoners in that room, He had not desired them to keep his secret. They all kept it. They did not even talk of it amongst themselves. Everyone separately awaited the result. The thing was straightforward, terribly simple. Claude could neither be counseled nor denounced. An hour afterward he approached a convict sixteen years old, who was lounging in the place of exercise, and advised him to learn to read. At this moment, the prisoner Fayette spoke to Claude and asked him what the devil was he hiding there in his trousers. It is a hatchet, said Claude, to kill Monsieur de to-night. Can you see it a little answered Fayette. The rest of the day was as usual at seven o'clock at night. The prisoners were shut up, each division in the workroom to which they belonged. And the overlookers went out, as it appears was the custom, not to return till after the director's visit. Claude was locked in with his companions like the rest. Then there passed in this workroom an extraordinary scene, one not without majesty and awe, the only one of the kind which is to be told in this story. There were, according to the judiciary deposition afterward made, four-and-twenty thieves. Including Claude. As soon as the overlookers had left them alone, Claude stood upon a bench and announced to all the room that he had something to say. There was silence. Then Claude raised his voice and said, You all know that Albon was my brother. Here they do not give me enough to eat. Even with the bread, which I can buy with the little I earn, it is not sufficient. Albon shared his ration with me. I loved him at first because he fed me, then because he loved me. The director, Monsieur De, separated us. Our being together could be nothing to him, but he is a hard-hearted man who enjoys tormenting others. I have asked him for Alban back again. You have heard me. He will not do it. I gave him till the 4th of November to restore Alban to me. He ordered me into solitary confinement for telling him so. I, during this time, have sat in judgment upon him and condemned him to death. We are now at the 4th of November. In two hours he will come to make his round. I warn you that I am about to kill him. Have you anything to say on the matter? All continued silent. He went on. He spoke, so it appears, with a particular eloquence which was natural to him. He declared that he knew he was about to do a violent deed, but could not think it wrong. He appealed to the conscience of his three-and-twenty listeners. He was placed in a cruel extremity. The necessity of doing justice to himself was a strait into which every man finds himself driven at one time or another. He could not, in truth, take the director's life without giving his own for it, but it was right to give his life for a just end. He had thought deeply on the matter, and that alone, for two months, he believed he was not carried away by a passion, but if it were so, he trusted they would warn him. He honestly submitted his reasons to the just men whom he addressed. He was about to kill Monsieur Day, but if anyone had any objections to make, he was ready to hear it. One voice alone was raised to say that before killing the director, Claude ought to make one last attempt to soften him. It is fair, said Claude. I will do so. The great clock struck the hour. It was eight the director would make his appearance at nine. No sooner had this extraordinary court of appeal ratified the sentence he had submitted to it than Claude resumed his former serenity. He placed upon the table all the linen and garments he possessed, the scanty property of a prisoner, and calling to him, one after the other, those of his companions whom he loved best after Albon, he divided all among them, he only kept the little pair of scissors. Then he embraced them all. Some of them even wept. Upon these he smiled. There were moments in this last hour when he chatted with so much tranquillity and even gaiety that many of his comrades inwardly hoped, as they afterward declared, that he might perhaps abandon his resolution he even amused himself with extinguishing one of the few candles which lighted the workroom by blowing through his nostrils, for he had vulgar habits which deranged his natural dignity oftener than they should have done. There were times when he could do nothing which did not smack of the kennels of Paris. He perceived a young convict to was pale, who was gazing upon him with fixed eyes and trembling, doubtless from expectation of what he was about to witness. "'Come, courage, young man,' said Claude to him softly. "'It will only be the work of a moment.' When he had distributed all his goods, made all his adieus, pressed all their hands, he interrupted the restless whisperings which were heard here and there in the dim corners of the workroom, and commanded that they should return to their labours. All obeyed him in silence.' the apartment in which this passed was an oblong hall a parallelogram lighted with windows on its two longer sides with two doors opposite to each other at the two ends of the room the working frames were ranged on each side near the windows the benches touching the wall at right angles and the space left free between the two rows of frames formed a sort of avenue which went straight from one door to the other crossing the hall entirely it was this which the director traversed in making his inspection he was to enter at the south door and go out by the north after having looked at the workmen on the right and left commonly he passed through quickly without stopping claude had reseated himself on his bench and had betaken himself to his work as james clement betook himself to his prayers all were in expectation THE MOMENT APPROACHED. ON A SUDDEN THEY HEARD THE CLOCK STRIKE. CLAUDE SAID, IT IS THE LAST QUARTER. THEN HE ROSE, CROSSED GRAVELY A PART OF THE HALL, AND PLACED HIMSELF LEANING ON HIS ELBOW ON THE FIRST FRAME ON THE LEFT SIDE, CLOSE TO THE DOOR OF THE ENTRANCE. HIS countenance WAS PERFECTLY CALM AND BENIGN. NINE O'CLOCK STRUCK. THE DOOR OPENED the director came in. At that moment, the silence of the workroom was of a chamber full of statues. The director alone was as usual. He entered with his jovial, self-satisfied and stubborn air, without noticing Claude, who was standing at the left side of the door, his right hand hidden in his trousers and passing rapidly by the frames. Tossing his head, mumbling his words— and casting his glance, which was law here and there, not perceiving that the eyes of all who surrounded him were fixed upon him as upon a fearful phantom, on a sudden, he turned sharply round, surprised to hear a step behind him. It was Claude who, for some instants, followed him in silence. What art thou about there, said the director, What makes thee not in thy place? Claude Gueux answered respectfully. "'Because I have something to say to you, monsieur le directeur. "'What about?' "'Concerning Alban. "'Still Alban!' exclaimed the director. "'Always,' replied Claude. "'Be quiet,' said the director, walking on again. "'Thou art not content, then, with thy four and twenty-four hours of solitary confinement.' Claude followed him. "'Monsieur le directeur, give me back my comrade.' Impossible. Monsieur le directeur, said Claude in a tone which might have softened a fiend, I entreat you, restore Alban to me. You shall see how well I will work. To you who are free, it is no matter. You do not know what the worth of a friend is. But I only have the four walls of my prison. You can come and go. I have nothing but Alban. Give him back to me alban fed me you know it well it will only cost you the trouble of saying yes what can it be to you that there should be in the same room one man called claude gueux and another called alban for the thing is simply that monsieur le directeur good monsieur d i beseech you earnestly for heaven's sake CLAUDE HAD NEVER BEFORE SAID SO MUCH AT ONE TIME TO A jailer. EXHAUSTED WITH THE EFFORT, HE PAUSED. THE DIRECTOR REPLIED WITH AN IMPATIENT GESTURE. IMPOSSIBLE. I HAVE SAID IT. SPEAK TO ME NO MORE ABOUT IT. YOU WEAR ME OUT. THEN, AS IF IN A HURRY, HE STEPPED ON MORE QUICKLY, CLAUDE FOLLOWING. THUS SPEAKING, THEY HAD REACHED THE DOOR OF EXIT. The prisoners looked after them and listened breathlessly. Claude gently touched the director's arm. At least let me know why I am condemned to death. Tell me why you have separated him from me. I have told you, answered the director. It is my will. He turned his back upon Claude and was about to take hold of the latch of the door. On this answer, Claude had retreated a step. The assembled statues who were there saw him bring out his right hand and the hatchet with it. It was raised, and ere the victim could utter one cry, three blows, one upon the other, had cleft his skull. At the moment when he fell back, a fourth blow laid his face open. Then, as if his frenzy once let loose could not stop, "'Claude struck a fifth blow. "'Twas useless. "'He was dead. "'Now for the other!' cried the murderer, "'and threw away the hatchet. "'That other was himself. "'They saw him draw from his bosom a small pair of scissors, "'and before anyone could attempt to hinder him, "'bury them in his breast. "'The blade was too short to penetrate. "'He stuck them in again and again, as many as twenty times. accursed cursed heart! Cannot I then reach you? And finally fell in a dead swoon, bathed in blood. Which of these men was the victim of the other? When Claude returned to consciousness, well attended, his wounds carefully bandaged, some good sisters of charity were about his pillow, and more than one magistrate, who asked him, with the appearance of great interest, Are you better?" He had lost a great quantity of blood, but the scissors with which he had wounded himself had done their duty ill. None of the wounds were dangerous. The examinations commenced. They asked him if it were he who killed the director of the workrooms at Clairvaux. He replied, it was. They asked him why he had done it. He answered, it was his will. After this the wound festered. He was seized with a severe fever, of which he only did not die. November, December, January, and February went over in recovering him and preparing him for his trial. Physicians and judges alike made him the object of their care. The former healed his wounds, the latter made ready his scaffold. To be brief, on the 10th, March, 1832, he appeared, being perfectly cured, before the assize court at Troyes. All the inhabitants of the town who could attend were present. Claude made a good appearance before the court. He had been carefully shaved, his head was bare, he was dressed in the sad prison livery of Clairvaux, of two shades of grey. The king's advocate had crowded the hall with all the bayonets of the province, to keep in, as he informed the spectators, the wretches who would figure as witnesses in this matter. When the trial was entered upon, a singular difficulty presented itself. Not any of the witnesses of the events of the 4th of November would make a deposition against Claude president threatened those with his discretionary power in vain claude then commanded them to give evidence all their tongues were loosed they related what they had seen claude listened with profound attention when one of them out of forgetfulness or affection for him omitted some of the circumstances chargeable upon the accused claude supplied them by this means the chain of facts which we have related was unfolded before the court. There was one moment when some of the females present wept. The huissier summoned the convict, Alban. It was his turn to come forward. He entered, staggering with emotion. He wept. The gendarme could not prevent his falling into the arms of Claude. Claude raised him and said with a smile to the king's advocate, Here is a villain who shares his bread with those who are hungry. Then he kissed Albon's hand. The list of witnesses have been gone through. The king's advocate rose and spoke in these words, Gentlemen of the jury, society would be shaken to its foundations if public vengeance did not overtake such great criminals as this man who etc etc after this memorable discourse claude's advocate spoke the pleader against and the pleader for made each in due order the evaluations which they are accustomed to make in the arena which is called a criminal court claude did not think that all was said he arose in his turn He spoke in a manner which must have amazed all the intelligent persons present on the occasion. It would have appeared as if there were more of the orator than the murderer and the poor artisan. He spoke in an upright attitude, with a penetrating and well-managed voice, with an open, sincere, and steadfast gaze, with a gesture almost always the same, but full of command. There were moments in which his genuine, lofty eloquence stirred the crowd to a murmur, during which Claude took breath, casting a bold gaze upon the bystanders. Then again, this man who could not read, was as gentle, polished, select in his language, as an informed person. At other moments, modest, measured, attentive, going step by step over the irritating parts of the argument courteous to his judges once only he gave way to a burst of passion the king's advocate had proved in his speech that claude Gueux had assassinated the director without any violence on his part and consequently without provocation what exclaimed claude i have not been provoked ah yes it is the truth i understand you A drunken man strikes me with his dagger, I kill him. I have been provoked, you show mercy to me, you send me to the gallows. But a man who is not drunk, who has his perfect reason, wrings my heart for four years, humbles me for four years, pierces me with a weapon every day, every hour, every minute, in some unexpected point, for four years. I had a wife, for whose sake I became a thief. He tortures me through that wife. A child for whom I stole, he tortures me through that child. I have not enough to eat. A friend gives it me. He takes away my friend and my food. I ask for friend back. He condemns me to solitary confinement. I speak to him. Him, the spy, respectfully. He answers me. In dog's language. I tell him I am suffering. He tells me I wear him out. What would you, then, that I should do? I kill him. It is well. I am a monster. I have murdered this man. I have not been provoked. You may take my life for it. Be it so. The debates being closed, the president made his impartial and luminous summing up. The results were, a wicked life, a wretch in purpose. Claude Gueux had begun by living in concubinage. He had stolen, then murdered. All this was true. When the jury were about being conducted to their apartment, the president asked the accused if he had anything to say upon the question before them. Little, replied Claude, only this. I am a thief and assassin. I have stolen and have slain a man. But why have I stolen? Why have I murdered? Add these two questions to the rest, gentlemen of the jury. After a quarter of an hour's deliberation on part of the twelve countrymen whom he addressed as gentlemen of the jury, Claude Gu was condemned to death. It is certain that at the beginning of the cause many of them had remarked that the accused was called "gue" or Beggar, which had made a profound impression upon them. Their decision was read to Claude, who contented himself with saying, It is well, but why has this man stolen? Why has this man murdered? These are questions to which they make no answer. He is carried back to prison. He supped almost gaily. He had no wish to make an appeal against his sentence. One of the sisters, who had nursed him, entreated him with tears to do so. He complied out of kindness to her. It would appear as if he had resisted till the very last moment, for when he signed his petition in the register, the legal delay of three days had expired some minutes before. The poor, grateful sister. Gave him five francs. He accepted the money and thanked her. While his appeal was pending, offers of escape were made to him by prisoners at Troyes, who were devoted to him. They threw one after another into his dungeon, through its air hole, a nail, a bit of iron file, and the handle of a bucket. Any of these three tools would have been sufficient to so skilful a man as Claude to cut through his irons. He gave up the nail, the file, and the handle to the turnkey. On the 1st of June, 1832, seven months and four days after the deed, its expiration arrived, pay de claudo, as we see. That day, at seven o'clock in the morning, the recorder of the tribunal entered Claude's dungeon, and announced to him that he had not more than an hour to live. His petition was rejected. Come, said Claude, coldly, I have this night slept well, without troubling myself that I would sleep better the next. It would appear as if the words of strong men always receive a certain dignity from approaching death. The priest arrived, then the executioner. He was humble to the one and gentle to the other. He maintained a perfect ease of spirit, while they were cutting off his hair "'Someone spoke in a corner of the dungeon of the cholera, "'which was at that moment threatening toi. "'For my part,' said Claude, with a smile, "'I have no fear of the cholera.' "'He listened to the priest with extreme attention, "'accusing himself of many things and regretting "'that he had not been instructed in religion. "'At his request they had given him back the scissors "'with which he had wounded himself.' One blade, which had been broken in his breast, was wanting. He entreated the jailer to have these scissors taken to Albon as from himself. He said also that he was anxious they should add to their legacy the ration of bread he should have eaten that day. He besought those who bound his hands to place in his right hand the five-franc piece which the sister had given him. At a quarter to eight, he went out of his prison with the customary, mournful procession which attends the condemned. He was on foot, pale, his eyes fixed on the priest's crucifix, but he walked with a firm step. This day had been chosen for his execution, because it was market-day, that he might be beheld on his way to the scaffold by as many as possible, for it would seem that there were yet in France Towns full of half-savage people, who, when society takes a man's life, make a public boast of it. He ascended the scaffold gravely, his eyes always fixed on the cross of Christ. He embraced the priest first, then the executioner, thanking the one, forgiving the other. The executioner pushed him back gently, says one account. At the moment when the assistant bound him on the hideous machine, he made a sign to the priest to take the five-franc piece which he had in his right hand, and said to him, For the poor. At the moment the clock was striking eight. The sound from the steeple drowned his voice, and the confessor answered that he could not hear him. Claude waited for an interval between two of the strokes, and repeated with gentleness, for the poor The eighth stroke had not yet sounded when the noble and intelligent head had fallen End of section one recording by Aidan Fitzgerald